Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Outside the original Zuccotti Park encampment in New York, no other local chapter of the Occupy movement was quite so energetic, interesting, and divisive as Oakland's. Like the national network, Occupy Oakland shaped a generation of activists, made friends and enemies, and advanced ideas that had fallen out of political discourse. And if Occupy per se disappeared in just some months, over the last 10 years, Occupy catalyzed huge changes to the Democratic Party, to direct action tactics, and to the way we talk about our society's deep inequality. Are we still the 99%? That's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. After the high-intensity protests of the 1960s and 70s, many activists had taken their battles to the courts, to nonprofits, and to more careful actions in the streets. There were, of course, more radical things taking place, like the Oakland protests against the killing of Oscar Grant by a BART police officer and the anti-globalization demonstrations in Seattle and across the world. But confrontational protests had largely ebbed. And then along came Occupy. Watching the low-res live streams from across the country, protesters not only did not orchestrate their movements with police, but actively battled them. And since 2011, that's been the norm for protest movements. That wasn't Occupy's only impact, author Michael Levitin argues in his book, Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy, which was released to coincide with the 10-year anniversary of the start of Occupy Wall Street, Levitin argues that Occupy also helped open up new debates about the failures of capitalism and the possibility of a truly progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Today, we're looking back at the legacy of Occupy generally, a bit later, Occupy Oakland specifically, and we're going to start on the East Coast with Occupy Wall Street, talking with Levitin. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you very much, Alexa. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So take us back... Just for people, you know, it's 10 years ago. So take us back to the, to the very beginnings there in Zuccotti Park, Occupy Wall Street. How'd this get started and how'd you get wrapped up in it? How did it get started? And just to clarify, I am here with your listeners here on the West Coast, though I was in New York for, for those events. Um, I didn't uh, intend or expect to show up at Occupy Wall Street. Uh, I heard about it on the radio driving east. I was going to get on an airplane uh, a week uh, into the movement, uh, flying over to Europe where I had been living. I didn't get on that plane. I went on. I saw the, the encampment at Zuccotti Park. It was one week old. It was just starting to get 
which there was an enormous march that day um, for the several young women got pepper sprayed by a cop in a video that went viral that afternoon. Um, the movement sort of hit headlines right then. Um, but it was really what I saw when I went down to that park that really locked me to that spot. And I knew I really, uh, this was a movement unlike anything, as you said in your opener, that activism had looked like previously in my lifetime. Um, and and I, I felt compelled to be part of it. I helped start the newspaper and things took off from there. So, you know, at the time, media and other people, you know, took a lot of uh, pride in kind of saying, well, you know, this is a leaderless movement or, you know, then sometimes people in Occupy would be like, well, we're a leaderful movement. What do we know about how that original encampment got organized? Like who, who was involved in that organizing effort? There were so many people. It, it was, yeah, leaderless is what the, the moniker and what it became named, you know, known as a leaderless movement. I mean, it was really had anarchist roots at its at its origins. It was consensus based. It was it didn't want or or adhere to any structure. It really did. The, the organizers. That is not to say that there weren't so many leaders involved in planning it. And really, grassroots uh, veteran organizers who had come out of precisely the movements that you mentioned: the anti globalization movement, the anti Iraq War protests. People knew what they were doing. They had done these movements before. What was different was that the mood in the country was so ready, because we have to remember 10 years ago, even further ago in 2008, was the financial crash, right, which had devastated the economy and the banks had gotten bailed out and homeowners had been foreclosed on with no bailout. And uh, the Great Recession hit and college students were graduating tens of thousands of dollars in debt uh, with no jobs to go to. And of course, the Arab Spring had happened that winter and the protests in Europe against austerity measures. People were ready in America to hear a new message, uh, a, a demonstration or a protest that wasn't like ones that had come previously because the outrage was different from any time previously. You know, some of the the great sort of organizing banners and slogans that came out of this, you know, we are the 99 percent. Uh, but there were there were a bunch Um were those just sort of organic developments that grew out of that encampment? Was that sort of an organized set of messaging by, you know, the, this broader set of leaders? And how did those things end up capturing the nation's attention? That's really key. I'm glad you bring up the, the signs and the banners, which for many people who pass through Zuccotti Park or pass through encampments nationwide here in Oakland, anywhere, the signs, which really have become a part of our protest culture with Black Lives Matter and with, you know, the climate strikes and you name it, signs, putting messages, memes in very short words um, that kind of sum up what the public is feeling, this deep grievance. That was pretty new uh, for Occupy, the way that it came. We are the 99%, as you say. I don't believe it was organized in any sense like people had, you know, it wasn't a union. It wasn't a group that said, here's our messaging and uh, here are the sort of uh, expressions we're going to inject into the conversation. But, you know, the 99 versus the 1%, people over profits and corporate rule, you know, uh, um, tax Wall Street greed. These were slogans that organically emerged because they were they were in the air after the financial crash mm -hmm. and everybody's uh, anger. And so I think they really um, that was part of the mass 
uh, sort of horizontal participation was that all you really needed to do was to show up at this movement mm -hmm. and you make your sign and you say what you have to say. And that was part of its magic. And it covered the grounds and the cement and the park floors of parks across the country. These really clear messages. And, you know, part of it was, right, that you had this social media filtering mechanism to kind of take these different signs and slogans and ways of seeing the world and and filtering them into the things that ended up really resonating for lots of people. And, and one of the things that really reminds me of is that this these sets of protests, these encampments had a few in addition to the economic context that you mentioned, there's also the media context is changing, too. Right. I mean, we have really the the live streaming as a as a tactic and organizing tactic in particular working with social media like twitter at that time how do you see that as as having sort of formed part of the you know the ingredients in forming uh, the occupy movement media the grassroots media that emerged from occupy is a fascinating concept in itself. Um, I, I sort of regret not creating a whole chapter on that specifically in my book, although I refer uh, to it, especially in the beginning, the idea that our mainstream kind of corporate media, and that includes the liberal media like the New York Times, and of course, all of the news channels, they really were not equipped in the language and in the parlance of mainstream media. They weren't ready to cover a movement that had such dramatic sort of sweeping implications in terms of what Occupy Wall Street was, was uh, who it was pointing the finger at. It was accusing the 1%. We hadn't done that in many decades in America, going back to the 60s, but even further, really back to the, to the FDR years in the 30s, 1930s, when the New Deal came in, when people had had enough of simply the highest sliver of the rich getting the wealth, uh, while the rest do not and, and sink further down uh, and, and are losing our middle class in America. That's what people were angry about. Uh, people decided to come out and uh, and the language was defined by really the protesters themselves. They created the media. We created the Occupied Wall Street Journal, a newspaper at the park. The live streams were an incredible sort of integral part. All of this technology was fast. What's fascinating about it and younger people protesting today might not tie it to that, but the live stream technology and Twitter and Facebook and social media and what we had then was a Tumblr blog. All those things were very new and everybody had a phone in their pocket all of a sudden. We never had that before. And they were able to shoot video of police brutality showing the negative in the street, but also of the great inspirational protests that were amazing with thousands of people make videos, post them online, have them go viral within hours and seen across the world on live TV. It was all very new. And Occupy kind of created that um, in the absence of a media that was ready to cover this movement. It created its own media. Hmm. And that is transferred to the new generation, which grows up uh, really intuitively knowing how to use their own media and use the technology. Look at the climate strikes or the March for Our Lives or Black Lives Matter. It is really a kind of a, a new class, a new generation that is uh, adept at, at using yeah. those forms. Talk to me about how this spread across the country from Zuccotti Park. We're going to talk about Oakland in a little while. Um, just tell me about, like, what was the actual structure for people who've kind of forgotten? A structure. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, structure. I mean, what was the emergent properties of the <laughs> Occupy movement in the different cities? Yeah. 
Right, right. It was uh, it was really incredible to see it happen. I mean, of course, it had to start at the epicenter of financial greed, right? It had to happen on Wall Street. That that was the what really distinguished it. Just to put this note in from something like the Tea Party, which had been a right wing reaction to those bailouts. Uh, but they were the Tea Party was angry at government. But who was Occupy Wall Street pointing the finger at? Wall Street. They were saying it is our financiers, our CEOs, who are to blame because they have purchased our elections and shape our policies. Um, and so from emanating out of Wall Street, it was incredible to see how fast within a week uh, or, or two weeks, it was the second week of the movement when about seven, 800 people were arrested on the Brooklyn Bridge. I was out there just marching peacefully across the bridge. A lot more people were arrested that day than, than were arrested the day of <laughs> the January insurrection that we just had hmm. uh, to note how the police responded quite differently uh, to, to that sort of peaceful uh, occupation of space. Uh, it spread incredibly, it spread like wildfire cities across the country, hundreds of cities. It started in the major cities, the LA's, and Seattle's and New Orleans, but really small towns. I remember my parents and friends all marching up here at Occupy Santa Rosa and smaller places than that, Occupy Freestone. I mean, places all got in on the act. I think that it created this moment that we hadn't seen in so long. As you said at the start of your show, activism had waned to such a degree the anti-Iraq protests of the early 2000s had sort of had really sucked the oxygen out of the room they had sort of deflated the anti-globalization movement the climate movement and people were waiting and when this hit it's like it just caught fire and the country heard the message because it was so clear we are the 99% and it spread everywhere. And as you say, Oakland was a, one of the most dramatic, colorful, <laughs> chaotic expressions of it. And we can't, can't forget the state repression that happened after 9-11 either, which did uh, its fair share to, to tamp down a lot of the anti-globalization movement as well. We're talking about the Occupy movement 10 years after the tents came down with Michael Levitin. He's a journalist and author of Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. And he's also a professor of journalism at Diablo Valley College. We'd love to hear from you. What was the legacy of Occupy nationally for the city of Oakland, for the Bay Area? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Stay tuned. We've got Cat Brooks coming up, among and other great guests after the break. We'll be back soon. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're going to demonstrate that even when the state holds out, the state holds out, 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Occupy movement 10 years after the tents came down. We're joined by Michael Levitin. He's a journalist and author of Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. And we'd like to introduce Kat Brooks to the show. She's the executive director of the Justice Teams Network. She's an activist, was part of Occupy Oakland. And of course, she was also a candidate for mayor of Oakland. Thanks so much for making time for us, Kat. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. We're also joined by Ali Winston. He's an independent journalist covering law enforcement and criminal justice. Uh, Ali covered Occupy Oakland for the East Bay Express and also for Color Lines. Great article uh, in Color Lines. And he's co-writing a book on the history of the Oakland police. Welcome, Ali. Good to be here. So, Kat, why don't we start with you? I mean, for you, what was Occupy Oakland? Like, how did you get involved? And sort of what did you think the, the spirit of the movement was, you know, in Oakland specifically? Sure. So at the time that Occupy uh, launched in Oakland, we had been, of course, still reeling and, uh, from the protest movement against the murder of Oscar Grant. Mm-hmm. But for us here in Oakland, the protests actually didn't stop, right? The, the 2009-2010 sort of led into rolling protests as we were pushing back against not just the brutality of the Oakland Police Department, but the brutality of policing nationwide. Right? So folks that were here at that time, we talk a lot about, right, just felt like we were in the streets all of the time. And every weekend, you sort of knew that there was going to be, be folks in, in the street. And so for us uh, in, in Onyx and, and other Black folks, you know, when Occupy um, Oakland was in, in the beginnings of launching, we were we were acutely aware of the need to be talking about police terror, right, mm-hmm. um, as part of this as conversation as well as race as part of the conversation, right? So it had been dominated by talks about capitalism, but for us here in Oakland, right, it was, where did the, where was the intersection between capitalism and racism? And so our involvement, my involvement was really around launching the, uh, the Black Organizing Committee, um, mm-hmm. which is going to focus on issues around Black folks. Um, and then also, of course, responding as the Oakland Police Department began to launch their violence against encampment and against the movement. Um, we were heavily involved in, in the pushback uh, against against that violence. And how did you think the Occupy organizers, of, of which obviously you're a part, how did you feel like that the leadership team kind of responded to you wanting to, to center uh, the issues of black people in Oakland? I'm going to giggle a little bit like Michael did around the word leadership, <laughs> right? Because it, it was it was definitely an experience or an experiment, right, in, in, yeah. in non-hierarchical um, so, so-called leadership. But I'm not gonna lie, it was a struggle, right? It wasn't like just because we're in Oakland, we've been dealing with race um, in particular ways in this city forever, that people are like, oh yeah, we should absolutely um, be talking about the intersection of racism and capitalism. It was the same fight that, that exists today and it existed before, right? Um, which was the, the larger of two evils and even the pushback that racism was distracting from the larger issue around capitalism. But we pushed back and we pushed back hard. And it wasn't just around right, leadership from black folks, including issues that, that were centered around black folks. There was also the fight here about should it even be called Occupy? Mm-hmm. Right. So our indigenous relatives. Right. And, and us standing um, in solidarity as allies, like how you can talk about Occupy on occupied land. And, and it, it, it got hectic there. Right. Really? Was it around Occupy or should it be called Decolonize Oakland? That was a thing um, it led to the formation of you know, the committee Decolonize the Hood um, and where we could go to a safe place and focus on issues that were impacting black and other folks in the BIPOC community um, and, and build solidarity and unity about being able to have these conversations, you know, at the top level, again, air quotes, um, of the decision making. But it, it wasn't an easy path at all. Yeah. 
Hey, Ali Winston, um, you had been covering the police for quite some time. So when you ha- when you see Occupy Oakland going up in, in downtown Oakland, um, what did you expect the police response to be, especially given that a longtime activist, Gene Kwan, was mayor of Oakland at the time? So I, at the time, I was covering criminal justice and law enforcement in um, for KLW on both sides of the bay in SF and in Oakland. And... I actually, I would go to the encampments and I could, you know, I'd get a flavor of what was happening down there, but I wasn't, I didn't start actually writing on it until the raid on, on October 25th. Um, at that point in time, as Kat mentioned, we were about two years, over two years, almost three years actually into a pretty intense period of several protest cycles, including both the Oscar Grant movement, um, the 2009-2010 anti-austerity student movement throughout California, which, you know, had quite some big eruptions in the Bay Area, uh, led to some pretty serious confrontations with the police, both in Berkeley and in Oakland and elsewhere, um, Santa Cruz, Los Angeles, I wanna say in Sacramento as well. And then there was um, the protests against the gang injunctions in Oakland, which dominated headlines uh, from about 2009 through 2000, early 2011. And they kind of created this confluence that Kat has alluded to where you know, there were a lot of people from different movements kind of coming together and working in working side by side on issues about policing, on issues about, you know, austerity, on issues about, you know, that pertain to the financial collapse and the situation that Oakland was in. You have to remember that this was the, like the depths of the crash. Oakland had about, I think, one in seven mortgages in Oakland had been foreclosed on at that point. We were at maybe 11, 12 percent unemployment and it had been for a couple of years. It was a very different Bay Area. But at the same time, it was also this sort of it was a sort of period where there was a lot of willingness to go out and confront law enforcement, um, both stemming from the Oscar Grant movement and from the pushback against the gang injunctions that had been put down by the city attorney at the time, John Russo in Oakland, and over the austerity protests, too. So there was a real willingness to get out and to confront law enforcement. And that's kind of what you know, we were expecting to happen. And you know, the Oakland Police Department at that point in time, they had, they have a long history, a uh, really contentious, nasty history of cracking heads um, when it comes to being met in the street by left-wing protesters going all the way back to the general strike, to the Palmer raids in the early 20th century, to, you know, through the 1960s activism, the Panthers, the new left. Um, and that's kind of the 2000s. You had actually... Movement. ID'd that some of the officers who had shot multiple people during their careers were actually deployed uh, for yeah. crowd control as well, too. Yeah, that was um, at that point in time, I've been doing a lot of reporting on officer involved shootings in Oakland and pinning down, you know, at that point, we couldn't learn about personnel records at that juncture in, in California. They were still um, deemed confidential because of laws and state Supreme Court reading uh, rulings. And um, I'd spent a couple of years kind of working back and figuring out who those officers were, what their histories were like, um, if there were red flags. This all pertained to OPD's still ongoing federal oversight, uh, their court oversight. And, um, you know, when the raid happened and all hell broke loose on October 25th, um, both during the morning raid and then the evening response um, that, you know, made international headlines, I recognized quite a few faces. Um, as, the, you know, the people behind the shotguns and throwing the flashbangs and tear gas over the... Uh, the police barricades. We're talking about the Occupy movement 10 years after the tents came down with Ollie Winston, an independent journalist, been covering law enforcement and criminal justice for a long time. Kat Brooks, executive director of the Justice Teams Network, co-founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project. 
uh, was part of Occupy and also candidate for mayor of Oakland. Michael Levitin, a journalist and author of Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. And I want to add one more voice into our conversation. Ashel Eldridge is an ethnic studies professor at San Francisco State, an Occupy Oakland activist and owner of SOS Juices. Welcome to the show, Ashel. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, I know that everybody's experience of Occupy is different. Everybody's was, you know, they, they you kind of only see it from your perspective. Um, so what was your Occupy Oakland like? Yeah, I just remember coming down to, you know, Oscar Grand Plaza and, you know, really witnessing sort of people's reaction to, um, well, one thing was powerful about it was people convening and conversating and having conversations. And I think that's something we sort of lost in the past couple of year, year and a half, actually, is this, this convening and having communication with each other and actually sort of practicing live and direct democracy. So that was a really powerful thing for me and I think for a lot of people. But I think what was most interesting to me was like, you know, folks witnessing like the underbelly of society, quote unquote, and some of the issues were more sort of outstanding and profound, um, which for me led to a lot of uh, looking at solutions, looking at solutions around mental health, looking at solutions around um, houselessness, um, and actually like, you know, doing direct action around that, you know, sort of bringing food to people. Um, I think that's sort of a lot of the, the mutual aid networks sort of had a little that has a little of that flavor that's going on now that came through the pandemic. Um, so for me, it was really inspiring. And, and when folks talked about it in a light where nothing really happened, I really had a lot of questions around that because I was like, wow, it's, it's hard to tell exactly how these, these movements are proliferating into people's idea, ideologies and, mm-hmm. and activities. Um, and I'm glad we have this conversation so we can start to tease some of that stuff out and see some of the, the positive aspects of Occupy. Yeah. Hey, thank you for that, Ashel. Uh, Michael Levitin, let's, that, that's teeing it up for you. I mean, I do think that like a lot of people, because the encampments eventually did go away and because, you know, they the didn't convert into a direct electoral force like, say, the Tea Party did, uh, kind of a reactionary movement. Um, I think some people don't think that anything came out of it. Obviously, you disagree. What do you think came out of it? I do profoundly disagree. I think that um, I think that our culture has come away a decade later, for the most part, understanding one thing about Occupy, that it gave us this language of the 99 and the 1%. It put inequality on the map, uh, which wasn't there previously. That changed the economic conversation. And I think for most people, it kind of stopped there because Occupy disappeared. As you say, the camps were taken apart and people went home. People went into other movements. Where they went into those other movements, however, had profound impacts and implications. Occupy transformed activism for one thing. It jump-started the climate movement. It went right in. People, especially from the East Coast, but across the country, went into the fossil fuel resistance that has now essentially become what we know as as this decades sort of hallmark movement run with gen z with young people coming out in strikes and the, the divestment movement against fossil fuels and anti-fracking and all of that uh, people going up to the kayaktivists up in seattle so much fossil fuel attention brought um, in a direct action kind of radicalized way um, by activists who came out of occupy and who spurred that new movement 
uh, it had other implications on the labor front. It uh, led to the fight for $15 minimum wage. It was Occupy activists, and it was the aftermath of Occupy Wall Street, one year after the encampment was cleared at Zuccotti, where the first strikes for a $15 wage by several hundred fast food workers ignited and started an, an incredible movement across the country that led to more than 30 states changing their minimum wage laws and, and Walmart uh, strikes on Black Fridays and teacher strikes nationwide. A new galvanized labor movement came out of Occupy. But I do think that the most visible form is the politics, because you can't talk about our new Democratic Party with Bernie Sanders, with Elizabeth Warren, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the new generation of progressive, uh, progressive anti-corporate Democrats that are look different from the Obama and Clinton era Democrats. You can't really discuss them uh, without looking at Occupy for having given the language that gave rise to those figures like Sanders and Warren. Um, they, they kind of, they, they knew the issues long before Occupy came along. Bernie Sanders certainly did, but it was really Occupy that gave this language of the 99% tackling corporate greed, taking on the billionaire class. And really that has stayed with us and transformed our one major party in America. Yeah. Kit Brooks, obviously the Oakland activism story, as you've been describing, is is more complex than maybe in some places in the country. But what effect do you think Occupy had on activism in Oakland? I, I, I've been sitting with this actually since you all invited me to be on the show. And, and what, I, what I do think uh, is something we don't talk about enough is that white folks, both here in Oakland and I think nationally, experienced the boot of police terror. Mm-hmm in a way that they hadn't for a really long time. And so I think that this, this work to create true allies in the movement, um, true white allies, and what the principles around that were, were spurred both by the difficult but ultimately principled struggles that I talked about earlier that we had about the intersection between racism and capitalism, but also the very visceral experience of being tear gas, the very visceral experience of having the crap kicked out of you, the very visceral experience of being arrested for doing little more than asserting your right to, to be a human being. Mm-hmm. Do you um, think and, he... and I, and I oh, think that that has had national re- reverberations and, and certainly has impacted the organizing dynamic here. And I'll just say one last thing. And, um, and I also see like the partnership between grassroots organizers Right, and organizations and labor here in Oakland that were fortified. One of the most beautiful days, right, was was the big general strike we had here, and and the work and the organizing, the struggle that happened there. We still feel the effects of today. Yeah. We actually have uh, just a little cut that we can play from. Uh, this is going to be retired longshoreman Jack Heyman talking about the general uh, strike, November second, twenty eleven. The trucks with uh, containers are backed up for at least a mile cargo's not being worked effectively. Uh, None of the cranes are moving, and the rank and file of the Longshore Union did this on their own. The leaders of the union wanted them to work today, but they, uh, by and large, are not working the port. The port is down. That was retired longshoreman Jack Heyman. Obviously, LWU has a very long history of direct yeah. action. And, um, but, of course, they, they did get involved uh, in this particular case as well. I wanted to um, – I wanted you to describe a little bit of what happened to Oakland city government through all of this um, just because the situation – really, I think, broadly, no one seemed to like the way that it was handled. No, the handling of Occupy actually – was one of the main reasons why the 
mayor at the time, Jean Kwan, lost her left wing, lost her progressive base. Um, she and her city attorney and the police, the interim police chief at the time, Howard Jordan, were they all, you know, authorized and, and supervised the raid on Occupy Oakland, which was a chaotic disaster. And the response the next evening um, almost killed a Marine veteran named Scott Olson, um, who was struck by in the head by a less lethal beanbag or a piece of canvas filled with lead birdshot that was uh, fired into his skull from a Remington shotgun from about 10 feet away. Um, many other people suffered injuries that night and also during subsequent clashes in November, um, in December, I want to say in January, and then in May of the next year as well. But the department's response, in particular, the Oakland Police Department's response to Occupy Oakland was so catastrophic and rife with cover-ups um, and just really egregious failings that it was responsible for the department basically landing under partial control of the federal court later that year. I wrote about it for Oakland side. Um, in regards to the, and also it's worth noting that no outside law enforcement agency held, um, helped investigate the Oakland Police Department. Um, the FBI did a cursory review of Olson's injury. Uh, state, then State Attorney General Kamala Harris actually refused OPD's request to help investigate uh, mm -hmm. the department's misconduct, um, something that she's actually never answered for. And in the city, terms of the city's politics, um, you know, the, there wasn't really an Occupy candidate elected to the city council. The council and the city's political class actually loathed Occupy. Um, they were pretty furious at the negative attention that was being brought to the city. There were some positive noises made towards them, but eventually, you know, the council was on board with the eviction. But it really did change city politics in a few different ways. Number one, um, the subsequent, um, the, in 2013, the- Well, hold on, actually, I want to, Ali, let's come back to that one in just a second, just because sure. we have a song, Hungry Money, by one of our guests, Ashel uh, Eldridge and Jay Blessing and Zumbi from Zion, uh, from the 2010 album, Earth Amplified. I just want to make sure we get a chance to hear it. It's about how the financial system takes advantage of people. We're talking about the Occupy movement 10 years after the tents came down. We'll be right back. The game's run by bad men, mad money and vultures Disrupted landscape, family culture For a no-bid win on a gallon of ultra Unleaded, unfettered in their progress Don't need an obelisk to see the obvious Franks, yens, marks, ones, pounds and pesos This shit gets sticky when it comes to queso There's my money, my money, but there's my hungry, my hungry Get this my money, my money, but there's my hungry, my hungry Get this Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Occupy movement. Ten years on, we're joined by Michael Leviton, journalist, author of Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. Ashel Eldridge, ethnic studies professor at San Francisco State University, Occupy Oakland activist and owner of SOS Juices. Kat Brooks, executive director of the Justice Teams Network, also co-founder of the NI Police Terror Project, activist, part of Occupy, and also a candidate for mayor of Oakland. Uh, we also uh, have Ali Winston, who right before the break was just telling us about changes in city politics. Ali's an independent journalist who's been covering law enforcement and criminal justice. Go ahead, Ali. You want to? Uh, you were saying that it kind of changed, Occupy changed city politics in kind of several It really did. So there was an attempt by the city of Oakland. They got money from the Obama administration about 2009 to build up a port security project, a security center linking uh, CCTV cameras, license plate readers, and motion sensors in the port of Oakland's facilities in West Oakland and then out in the airport in East Oakland. Um, they got money to build that out in 2009. By 2013, um, partially based on the advice of Bill Bratton, um, who came in as a consultant to help OPD uh, kind of tighten up its, allegedly tighten up its um, crime fighting measures. Um, and he was like the NYPD well, commissioner, right? Former NY, twice yeah. uh, served as NYPD commissioner. This was actually between his um, his terms as NYPD, uh, in charge of NYPD. He also ran LAPD as well. Um, he's mo- probably the most controversial figure in American law enforcement today. Um, over the past, actually, I would, I would say over the past 50 years. So when the, the what was called the Domain Awareness Center was kind of rolled back, unveiled to the full public in 2013, it had grown from the Port of Oakland to cover the entire city and would, you know, under its plan at the time, under the, the schema at the time, would have included sensors from, you know, highway. It would have con- included feeds from CHP cameras on highways, um, cameras in the Oakland schools, cameras in Oakland housing, in the Oakland Housing Authority. It was a huge, huge, huge expansion of authority. And the pushback of it against it um, was momentous and it really. Uh, kind of constrained the project, killed it, and eventually led to the formation of a standing committee, standing committee on privacy um, in Oakland, that then served as a model for municipal municipal oversight of surveillance technology throughout the country. That was one result. Another was the um, the creation of the police commission a few years later. That happened after the um, I believe that that was after the sexual exploitation scandal involving dozens of cops in Oakland and elsewhere around the. Um, around the Bay Area. But by and large, what Occupy Oakland did is it really contributed not only to push back on law enforcement, but it helped, you know, bolster the fight for 15, fight, you know, the fights about way, campaigns around labor, um, campaigns around fair housing. There were, I believe that there were anti-eviction, um, there were anti-eviction actions that took place, I believe in early 2012 and throughout there. I mean, it really did create a kind of petri dish for different movements to come together and really organize against, um, you know, forces of yeah. racial oppression, capitalist exploitation, um, divestment, uh, consol- consolidation of, uh, of resources in the hands of some very wealthy people. But the thing is that over time, um, you really saw the financial pressures of gentrification and the drastic increase in housing prices and rentals uh, and rents in the Bay Area kind of drive a lot of those activists out of the city um, to the point where there I don't believe that there was a 10-year event in Oakland yeah. to commemorate it. 
We want to hear your thoughts. We're going to get to some calls. What was the legacy of the Occupy movement nationally for the city of Oakland, for the Bay? And what are your memories from that time? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum, or you can email forum at kqed.org. Welcome to the show, Ariane. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I went down to San Francisco's Occupy, and um, it was a life-changing event for me, and I want to tell you why. Um, I normally work with the severely mentally ill, but I rarely see them included and welcomed in any environment. They certainly are targeted by the police, and I think that is why this um, the the confusing nature of Occupy, the creativity, um, the so-called disorderliness, was what really unnerved the police. And um, it represents the Occupy movement, totally different set of values, not only inclusion, but sharing and sharing of space, sharing of food, sharing of books. And the um, call and response using the, the microphone so people felt heard. Um, there was a consensual way of decision-making. And we can see how that has permeated even new social media forms like Clubhouse, where you have people coming together from all over the world and um, percolating ideas. Um, for me, I'm, I went down because I was also... Um, trying to save Mount Sutra Forest, our largest urban forest in San Francisco, and I was collecting signatures for that. And in contrast to what I normally feel um, when I go down to City Hall or write letters, and it's a very lonely, um, invisible process, going down there and feeling the healing energy of people coming together, um, not only from idealism, but from this other set of um, moral. Um, in which there's more of a loving, healing aspect and that the interconnectedness of things and people and living systems um, and diverse life forms and all their sloppy expression and messy decision-making, all that was honored there. And I think that's continuing to reverberate even today in our society. It totally changed my life. Thank you. Thank you so much for that call, Ariane. Get Brooks, I wanted to ask you about this, about the mutual aid aspects. In part, I'm thinking about some of your work that you've done for, you know, kind of communities to keep themselves safe without police intervention. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the most beautiful things that that you saw um, was that people were creating communities um, that were dealing with community crisis and not relying on, you know, the state, which ultimately is always violent in its response. And that's everything from feeding the unhoused, right? Not not folks that were just, that had just come and pitched to the tent, but people that had been sleeping, you know, outside be, be, because of um, gentrification, because of economic inequity, right? The, the the people that we said that we were doing Occupy for. And so the, the feeding that, that then led to like fighting for housing, all, I mean, all the way to, right, the, the mutual aid that responded to, to the, injuries that were incurred by people um, at, at the hands of the, the, the Oakland Police Department. I mean, um, Ali mentioned, you know, Scott Olson. It was, you know, Occupy first responders um, that, that, that got to him first. 
and and you saw that um, over and over again. And and I actually hadn't made the connection between that and the work we do now, right? Responding to mental health crisis and substance abuse and other issues without law enforcement. Um, but I think it codified it inside of Oakland culture, right? And and you saw like organizations spring up who were dedicated to training people to be able to take care of other people. And, and that actually is a lasting legacy, I believe, of occupying the city of Oakland. Michelle Eldridge, you were also inspired by some of those mutual aid aspects as well, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Uh, my um, So at SOS Juice, System of the System Juice is, essentially was looking at, you know, you know, health, health and wellness is, is a critical aspect of self-determination. And a lot, a lot of the, you know, processes, which were beautiful, uh, allowing people to be in communication. I think one of the speakers just mentioned um, consensual decision making, the call and response, sort of this practicing democracy, if you will, um, and also like, but but also led to a lot of organizing around the wound of economic disparities as well, and it sort of exposed that. And then it also led us to this point of like, well, what is how do we govern from here? Like, so we we get that there's like a communality in in our struggles, you know, for justice for equity. Um, but then it put us, it put it in our hands, right? Like if we're developing systems to deliver food to people or we're first responding, like Kat Brooks just, just mentioned, then what are the systems and the pathways to set up something legitimate and ongoing um, without having to rely on um, so systems that are, are historically violent towards, towards our community. So I think that really had us grow our muscles in that way. And, you know, so my organization, Central Food and Medicine, we, we do exactly that. I mean, a lot of it also comes from the history of, of Oakland, too. Like, you know, I'm from mm-hmm. Chicago originally, but, you know, my, I'm an aunt to Black Panther, right? So we had a lot of conversations over this past year and a half around how to organize, um, you know, based off of sort of the history. But I think that converged nicely with Occupy, because I think there are no movements that, that generally just, just die in, in their, their failures, quote unquote. There's always learnings that happen and there's always growing and muscle making that's happening. So I think it was a big, big thing that led to the creation of our organization. Yeah. Let's bring in Chris from Santa Clara into the conversation. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks for taking the call. Um, I, I served for 16 years on the Democratic National Committee. And, you know, 10 years ago when the Occupy movements were really going, there were lots of us very excited. You know, maybe not everybody, but a lot of us excited to see this new wave of activism. And, you know, 10 years out now, one looks and it's really the young Republicans and the right wing who are funding that new generation to go and apply for appointed and elected positions at the local communities across the whole country. What's it going to take for Occupy alumni to step up and demand their desk in a city hall, uh, you know, whether it's on a planning commission, on a lower level committee, to get into the system so they have decision making power because the other side is funded and they're taking over. Michael Levitin, what do you think? That's a tough one, but it's it's spot on. Uh, I think we're all waiting for this new generation of uh, young local elected leaders to come up and, and transform our politics in the way that many have articulated and, and that really the majority are calling for. I think I'm not sure that I quite agree with Chris that it's all Republican. I think what we saw, you know, Donald Trump changed the equation in a big way. Yes, he brought out the right, but he also, it served as the galvanizing point that spurred, frankly, the generation that Chris might be referring to, sort of Occupy veterans. 
I mean, the young people that came out and ran for office, ran for state senate and assembly seats, ran for board supervisors, took positions. There's a lot of democratic socialists out there, actually dozens of them who've won seats in the last several years since 2018, the midterms. Um, I think we've seen a, a really just a huge kind of a mushrooming of these younger progressive activists uh, who've gone into electoral politics. I think people got the message, certainly with Donald Trump, that if you don't get off the sidelines and stop talking about the change, but actually roll up your sleeves and go for elected office, you're not going to start changing the laws. I think we've seen a lot of that. Uh, clearly, we need to see more of it. And, uh, and and the painful part is that in Washington, you know, we thought that we, we speaking of uh, the, the left of the center, I mean, people thought we would see a, a progressive real shift and clearly a several centrist, you know, and further conservative Democrats are holding up that process. I'm surprised we're not seeing more activism that is driving that change at the at the federal level to give people what what really like two thirds of the country or more three quarters has demanded that they want of these progressive priorities Medicare uh, expanded and abolishment or, or, or debt free education and uh, childcare and taxing the wealthy these are majority priorities by the majority of the population that we sort of need to see a new movement come up and demand and force our elected leaders uh, to, to push into reality. Let's go to another caller, Buck from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi, folks. Um, so Occupy was a wonderful movement, and my experience of it was exclusively in San Francisco. Sadly, we did not have as rosy an experience or as successful an experience as hosted in Oakland. Uh, and it goes to the root of my biggest criticism of Occupy. Um, in San Francisco, except in Bernal, with Occupy Bernal, for the most part, it failed to root itself in the day-to-day -day struggles of poor and working people. In San Francisco, black homeowners facing foreclosure used Occupy Bernal and ACE, uh, a statewide organization, to bring Wells Fargo to the table and saved scores, maybe even hundreds of primarily African-American homeowners from losing their homes to predatory lenders like Wells Fargo. So as much as I loved Occupy and as much as it changed my life in San Francisco, the Occupy movement was virtually impossible to interact with. Black blocks surfaced. We would bring seniors and disabled on marches. They were dangerous. Uh, we had to provide very strong security because Black Bloc would attack the cops and risk the families and seniors and kids that we brought from Bernal Heights to the marches. So God bless the gentleman for writing his book. But uh, there were some significant problems in Occupy that I think led to its failure, not just because of oppression from the state. Thank you. Thanks, Buck. Cat Brooks. There's a few things that Buck said. Um, one is, you know, should there have been a different focus to Occupy, say, saving homes because of foreclosure? You said earlier, you know, that 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 Oakland was focused on trying to unite these critiques of capitalism and, and racism. If you if you could go back and, and do it again, is there are there things that you would do differently to try and dramatize that or or create, you know, uh, you know, change in. The, the on the ground situation there in Oakland. Oh, I I really don't know. I haven't I haven't spent a a, a lot of time there. I I, I do just want to respond to something else actually. Sure. That Buck said, 
I think it's really dangerous when we start blaming the people for the violence of the police, right? Um, if you watch these incidents unfold, it is almost always um, the police that are there, that are inciting um, and escalating violence. And, and so I, I think that, that that's something maybe that we, we, we could have done differently. I think that the way that we've handled also the diversity of tactics conversation, um, I, I think has not been all that great on, on any of the sides, right? And I have self-critique um, there as well. Um, yeah. So, yeah. and then the, the, the very the other last thing I want to say is that I, I think it's an experiment that we're in the middle of, of activists going into elected positions. And I think a lot of activists um, are, are finding, right, that they're having to sacrifice some of their progressive values in order to survive inside of that system. And then if anything, in terms of the legacy of Occupy, right, what are we creating to take care of us as opposed to only um, integrating ourselves in the state? It's got to be all roads in. Yeah. Uh, Michael Levitin, I'm going to give you the last word since you uh, wrote a book. Uh, <laughs> uh, Susan Commenter says, it seems to me that uh, ultimately nothing positive was gained. There was a huge backlash to Occupy in Portland and other places when even the left wing were disgusted with people taking over cities and that built up trash and closed down businesses. I'm a left wing Democrat, but I saw and see no overall benefit to what happened for the country. What would you tell her? That's a great note to end on. I think that's how the country feels. Many people feel in large part. And that really is a reason that drove me to write this book. I think so many of us in the activists, in the left community and pushing for social economic justice, we've followed the trends. We've seen, I have seen these last 10 years, connecting the dots, seeing how the legacy of Occupy, what it, the conversation that it started, you know, movements don't change things overnight. Activists I spoke to, people I interviewed for this book repeatedly came up, you know, you don't see the impacts in a year or even necessarily in 10 years. It might be this coming decade, the twenties, that you really start to see the fruits of what Occupy started as a conversation. And, uh, I agree with the callers who say, my goodness, I mean, we can talk all day about how many flaws Occupy had and its contradictions and its failure to sort of achieve what it would have liked to set out to achieve. Uh, it didn't do that. What it did was initiate a conversation, ask really important questions that hadn't been asked in generations here and put in the face of the power elite of the 1%. That conversation hasn't gone away and it has evolved into a world of activism, of people engaging in the political process, of trying to save our climate and of really envisioning what a more unified kind of collective yeah. response needs to come, which I believe is coming quite soon. Yeah. You've been listening to uh, Forum. We've been talking about the Occupy movement. That was Michael Levitin. He's got a new book, Generation Occupy. We've also joined by Ashelle Eldridge, Occupy Oakland activist, owner of West West Juices, Kat Brooks, executive director of the Justice Teams Network, and Allie Winston. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.